King Jesus, we recognize your authority, and we know, God, that you are the creator of all things. Father, we ask tonight as we pursue your word, as we pursue your voice, God, your written word and your spoken word to us as you convict and reveal to us your truth, we ask, Jesus, that you would illuminate not just the text, um, but that you would illuminate yourself, God, because all of our pursuit in the Word, all of our pursuit in the Spirit is about encountering and knowing Jesus. So we thank you, God, that we can know you, that you are knowable, even though you're hidden for the humble and the hungry. We are the humble and the hungry, and we ask you to reveal yourself in deeper ways with us tonight. We pray these things, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. All right, so... Grateful again that you guys continue to come back to study the scriptures with me. This is sort of my unashamedly long-winded lecture self. Uh, You know, I do a lot of different things online, and this is just sort of me time. Can't there be some things just for me? Is that so selfish? Um, Other than that being the definition, uh, I'm indulging in selfish pleasures tonight to just talk and to teach through um, the scriptures from a way that has really become part of who I am and how the Lord has revealed himself as I've wrestled with philosophy and theology and politics and religion and geopolitics and ancient history. Like all of these things converge, have converged in my soul over the last 20, 30 years of studying um, and not just studying the word, encountering the rhema word of God. Uh, about 15 years ago, I had this encounter with Jesus, and like I was a good Reformed theologian boy, you know, and I, I I didn't even know that I was a cessationist, and I didn't have categories for the bad theology that I lived in, and then God broke through the categories that I didn't even know I had and began to reveal life to me, and so that's just kind of the well that this kind of stuff comes out of, and I, again, am really grateful that y'all are joining with me. So tonight, I wanted to cover um, the last couple of weeks. Let me do a quick recap. The last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the book of Genesis, and we began talking about how Genesis is a home story, not necessarily a house story. And what that really means is that when God created the heavens and the earth, and the ancient Hebrews recorded this origin story of how the earth was formed, the story that God was telling was not a house story, not the material origins of the universe story. He was talking about a home story. It was a temple story, a six-day building and a seventh day inhabiting the presence of God in creation. And we trace that through uh, a lot of different scriptures. And then the second week, last week, we looked at how that plays into the understanding of, actually that was last week's. Um, the first week was about the firmament and the the temple and the presence of God and the the limits of humans uh, of humanity's encounters with God. And then we told the home story. And so this week we will be picking up on some of those themes. So if y'all haven't watched, um, you need a little more volume. All right, I can do that for you, Edna. That's why I'm squirrely squirrel. There we go. A little more volume. I could talk louder. Uh, There we go. Um, So this week, we're going to pick up on some of those themes. If you haven't listened to last week's or last two weeks, I encourage you to go and do that on adamschindler.com. You can click on theology, or there's on the homepage slider, there's some of those things right now, but all of these are under the theology menu. 
But this week, we're going to pick that up, and we're going to talk about the creation of humanity. Okay, and and again, this is not a home. Sto- this is not a house story. This is not a material origin of the universe story. This is about something deeper than that. This is about God's habitation with humanity and what He's doing. So tonight, we're going to see that God created in His image. Uh, this was an idea that I was going to speak about, but I ran out of time. So we're going to look at in His image, and then we're going to talk about how God made humanity valuable and God made humanity vulnerable. Okay, and then next week I'll do imperfect. So if you guys are ready to go, then we'll do it. All right, we're beginning here now in Genesis 1, 26 through 27. And let's read this together. If you guys have your Bibles, um, kind of be all over the place. I got them on the screen here. Hopefully it's large enough that you can see it if you're looking at something on your phone. This is Genesis 1, 26 through 27, and all of these scriptures I read through the English Standard Version, which I like. Um, that's why I use it. Genesis, 20, uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them, man, humanity, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. All right, so um, there are a bunch of questions about the the creation of mankind, humanity. This kind of two there there appears to be quote unquote two creation stories in the book of Genesis, in Genesis one and then Genesis two. So I just want to upfront quickly address that. Um, there's a lot of other kind of theologies that come up with the second creation narrative and around the seed and the serpent, and there's some weird stuff. Um, Without going into detail on a lot of that, a lot of that was inspired by some Gnostic uh, gospel. The first major assault to Christianity was a thing called Gnosticism, and some of that was connected to this this woman seed serpent thing. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then your mind has not been polluted. Um, but the the basic idea with this quote unquote two creation story uh, pieces in Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2 for humanity is that the, the first chapter of Genesis uh, is talking from a cosmological perspective, and then God is telling a home story there. He's talking about the creation of a tabernacle for his presence, for his people to be with him, and then the seventh day he fills it. And then that's a, that's a, that's a, a cosmological presentation. And then in Genesis 2, the Hebrew authors uh, double down in some, not really double down, but they tell the story again from another perspective, because humanity was the prize of creation. It was the last thing, we were the last thing that God made, we were very good. And so I believe that they go into more detail about the creation of humanity. It's not a chronological reading. We can't read this Eastern book with a Western chronology mindset, a very Aristotelian, Platonic, linear thought. Like, they weren't writing it for that purpose. So even though chapter 2 is after chapter 1, there, that does not imply chronology uh, for the Eastern mind, for the writers of this book, okay? So 
Chapter 2 that we're going to look at here about the creation of humanity is not a second creation. It wasn't something that happened chronologically after the first creation. It was more specific information, kind of drilling down on that particular thing. Okay? So, I've highlighted these uh, particular phrases here. Let us make man in our image and our likeness and have dominion over them. I want to talk about both of those things, the hour and dominion. So the first thing that we recognize from Scripture is that this phrase God uses is our, and you've probably seen that. But the reality here is this articulates that God has never been without community. Okay, in the beginning, there wasn't, there wasn't the singular. It wasn't God. And it wasn't like this royal we kind of a, of a thing either. Like, God is articulated, the Hebrew authors are articulating that God always existed in a community with himself. Okay? And as, as New Testament believers, this idea of the Trinity uh, begins in this plural, God making things in our image. Okay? And... Whether the Hebrew writers, well, the Hebrew writers were most definitely not referring to the Trinity as a theological construct that came after the life, death, resurrection of Jesus and the establishing of the New Testament ecclesia and all the stuff that happened in Rome and the councils, right? But the Hebrew authors were articulating something that they understood was that community was the foundation of the divine. That's a really big deal for the Eastern mind and for the Jewish people. And all of the Middle Eastern um, uh, communities are so deeply entrenched in a tribal, communal, relational structure, right? And for many, many English Western believers, um, you know, many of us are American. I got a few Canadians um, up north watching, but most of us are in this sort of uh, individualistic Western mindset that we have gated homes and we lock our doors and, you know, we leave our parents and we don't live with grandparents and, you know, we don't live with parents. Like we don't have the same kind of extended family in the West. Um, There are a few cultural culture groups that do have more of an extended family, but this is the Hebrew understanding articulation that God is deeply immersed inside of community. And that is key for us to understand this text. The other thing that this articulates to us is um, that this passage gives us our first indication of what we need to look at about what does it mean to be an image bearer, okay? And the scriptures say that God made man in our image and then gave them, gave us a call to have dominion, or the Hebrew word means to husband, Okay, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago or last week. Husbandry in, in if you're a master gardener, you, you become an expert in husbandry. It's the idea or the practice of tending to things that, are, that require life. And husbandry is about tending to life, growing, cutting off, pruning, building, expanding through nurturing. Okay? So this image-bearing... Um, phrase that gets used, which we're going to talk about here for the next little bit, is immediately connected to the idea of having dominion or husband, husbanding, <laughs> having husbandry, um, being a husband in creation, okay? So to husband means that the image bearer 
natures. Like the image bearers in nature, we are called to nurture life in community with the divine and with each other. Okay, so this nurturing, it's not this top-down sort of corporate greed, we're going to pollute the earth and strip the earth of its natural resources and, you know, to hell with this earth. You know, the rapture is going to happen and we'll all be taken out of here anyway. Um, sucks for all those other people that didn't believe us. Like, that, that's not the idea from the scriptures. Okay, that's a very, it's a very small, narrow-minded view of the orthodoxy of the scriptures, right? We have been called into community like God to tend to and care for his creation. Okay, and there are so many ways, y'all, that this goes sideways, right? I mean, the in one respects, not having a good, robust uh, Christian, Judeo-Christian um, ecology, environmentalism, if we don't do that, we can. Humans are terribly good at exploiting, raping, and pillaging, and destroying things. I mean, that's like our superpower, you know, I mean, look at the 20th century. I make sort of light of it, but it, it was a century of war and death, and hundreds of millions of people died in the 20th century because of ideology and greed and war, right? And, and, and these weren't just religious conflicts. These were not religious conflicts. These were anti-religion, anti-God conflicts in the earth. So humanity's great at destroying and, quote-unquote, having dominion in that capacity, right? That's not what God's called us to. But on the other side, this environmentalism, uh, there's a pretty militant strain of environmentalism that really becomes a religion uh, for the left. For the anti-God left, uh, environmentalism is the cosmology of the, the liberal religion. And I use that liberal term sort of loosely. In that the, the, the creation of, well, they wouldn't call it creation, but the environment is the thing that we have to protect at all costs. And this hard left environmentalism begins to denigrate human life and elevate the, the plants and the animals and the spotted freckled toads and like all these different things that we can begin to go on the other extreme in environmentalism is we can downplay human life and say that the earth would be better if humans didn't exist. That's a very real strain in a lot of the environmentalism, uh, the extreme environmentalism. And that isn't the biblical way either. Okay, It is this idea that we are in community called to nurture the environment and as part of our environmentalism, we need to understand that humans are part of our environment, right? We need to care for the humans as well as the animals and the plants. So that was a long way to just say be, having a good environmental um, uh, theology includes recognizing the primacy of humanity to be the stewards and caretakers, not to denigrate humanity. Okay, Um but this idea that we're called to do this in the nurturing husbandry dominion thing, we're called to do this in community, okay? And what's the community? Well, we get an immediate understanding from the Scripture that God was always in community, and God puts us in community with Him, and we're called to steward creation. So this is what the writer of Ecclesiastes calls a three-corded strand, Okay, and a threefold cord. And this passage is dealing quite a bit. It's read a lot in uh, in wedding ceremonies. But let's take a quick look at it, real quick. 
So this is Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and is not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A three-folded cord is not quickly broken. So you can see why this would be read at weddings, right? Man and woman coming together with God as the third cord. Uh, But this is fundamentally talking about community, that we are in community with each other, community with God, and we're called to be stewards of creation. So this is part of what the image-bearing person does. And what I'm laying out for you right now is what does it mean to be an image-bearer? When God said, let us make man and woman, humanity, in our image, what does that mean? Well, the first thing it means we just talked about is that we are husbands of creation. Let's look at another piece to this puzzle. Um, We need to ask this question, what does the word image mean? That we're made in God's image. There's a handful of different um, teachings that I've heard uh, on all of this, but I think this is condensed because I can't go into all those or we'd be here all night. But this is the primary one, is that an image is a copy of a heavenly reality or a shadow of the divine. Okay, this word shadow, I think, is an important one to help us understand some of this. The scriptures use this term shadow to talk about the Old Testament. The writer of the book of Hebrews says it like this. He says in Hebrews 8, 4 through 5, Now, if the high priest were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Let me stop there. So the writer of Hebrews is making this argument to uh, some Jewish believers, and he's talking to them. He's trying to unpack the Mosaic Covenant and what he calls the Melchizedek uh, priesthood, the Mosaic and Levitical priesthood through the Moses Covenant, but then also the, uh, the Melchizedekian priesthood, a perpetual priesthood. And he's drawing their distinctions here about the law and about the priesthood when he's saying that these individual priests, verse 4, the end, who offer gifts according to the law, which was Moses. Verse 5 of Hebrews 8. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So we talked about this last time about the pattern that God gives to Moses as he goes up. This is Moses' creation story. It's seven different elements that are inside, seven different primary elements inside the tabernacle, um, in the tabernacle area, things that are in heaven that God wanted manifest on the earth to worship him. So the writer of Hebrews is saying that these, these things, this Mosaic law, is a shadow. It's a copy of the heavenly things. Okay? So when the Bible says that we're made in God's image, part of that is that we are a copy in some respects of who God is. Now, this can also go weird uh, when there's whole different kinds of theologies built around that we are little gods ourselves. Um, and in one respect, uh, that's a that's well, I don't want to say that's true. In in one respect, it is true because we bear the image of Jesus. That deserves a much longer discussion, but. 
the copy of the thing is not the thing itself, okay? But it's not, not the thing, okay? There's a connection there. It isn't God, but it's not, not God. But it is not God because we're not God, but we're connected to God in a really dramatic way. And it's, it's sort of a conundrum, a little bit of a mystery. And I want to unpack, I think, some helpful ways of looking and thinking about being an image bearer or a copy, okay? And to do that, we need to understand God's clear injunction that we were never to make graven images, right? That's the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not make graven images, why would we not make graven images? Well, in one respect, we're the image of God, right? That's our job. God already made an image bearer on the earth to, to, to image out himself to creation. And how dare we create something is like a third copy, Thrice removed from reality is a, is a phrase that Plato uses when he talks about, he's got this myth of the cave. He talks a lot about, uses the same metaphor, which I'm, don't worry, I'm not going to teach you Plato. Um, but that's the idea, thrice removed from reality. So the reality is there's God, right? And then God made a copy, humanity, and then humanity makes a copy. That's three times away from the original. Okay, and that is something that God said, don't do that. Why? Well, is he an insecure deity that gets offended easily? He's like, I don't like that other God. He threatens me. No, the, the things that we make are pale comparisons to the reality that he is himself. And very quickly, when we create a deity, it is usually a demon or very quickly becomes that. And there's a great, there's a great phrase. I think it's from Bertrand Russell. I don't remember, but... He says this quote is that God created mankind in his image, and we've been returning the favor ever since. What does that mean? God made us in his image, and now we create God in our own image, right? We imagine who God is based on our own belief. So we usurp the power and authority of God, and we create God in the image of man, humanity, and that is making a graven image. And God is very clear about that in the Ten Commandments. We went through some of that if you join me with the Exodus study. So um, here is a helpful look. We need, we need a better understanding of what it means to be um, an image bearer. And here is uh, an image that I think will help us. Okay, and how does this help us? So these are camels, right? But this is the substance of a thing, okay? This has material properties, all right? These are, you know, they have matter. They have flesh and bones and blood and sinews. And up here on the ridgeline with all the camels, that is the substance. But down here on the bottom, that is the image or the shadow, all right? And, you know, we know this. We all know shadows. Uh, you know, it's fun if you have cats, which I don't recommend. Um, anytime I talk about cats, I don't recommend them. I don't like them but that's my personal preference. Uh, but if you have a cat, you know, like you can, you can have them chasing around little light dots and things get scared by their shadows because people don't understand, children and sometimes animals don't understand what the image is, right? They think it's another substance, right? We, we just got a puppy and they're enamored with the mirror, right? They bark at it. 
because they don't know that it's themselves. Like they don't have the cognitive discipline to know the difference between substance and image or shadow. All right, and uh, this will be helpful for us to understand this. So I want to talk to you a little bit about substance and shadow, okay? To do that, we need to take a look at the idea that faith is substance, all right? I'm going to introduce this idea of faith. We all know faith. We've heard of faith, hopefully, um, and not the country singer. But faith is Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. Now, faith is the assurance of the things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. So here again, the writer of the Hebrews, writer of Hebrews is connecting faith with creation, the origin of creation. All right? So we need to look at that because we're talking about creation. The origin of the universe was spoken out by God, and faith is somehow connected to the origin of the universe spoken by the Word of God. Now, this word assurance in the Greek, sometimes if you have like the RSV or the New King James, they'll translate this as substance, which I like a whole lot better because this word is the Greek word um, hypostasis. Assurance, translated hypostasis. I'm going to go full screen so you all can see this. And this word is two words. Okay, hypo, which means underneath. And then stasis, or histomy, which is causes to stand. Underneath and causes to stand. So when it says that faith is the assurance or the substance Faith is the thing underneath you that allows you to stand on something solid. It's something that you don't see, just like God spoke with his divine words and ordered the chaos of creation, ordered the chaos of the world, and spoke into existence things. Faith is the thing underneath underneath us that gives us something to stand on. So, in this particular time in, you know, in our nation and in nations of the earth right now, uh, we're reading, um, we're, how do I say this? Uh, it is being required of us uh, to believe the word of God, to have a whole lot of faith right now. That's a good way to say it. Um, to have a whole lot of faith. And that faith doesn't mean blind belief. Right? It doesn't mean brainwashed religion from the far-right fundamentalist, you know, domestic terrorists that cling to their God and the Bible and whatever. Basket of deplorable, my religion, whatever. Uh, get frustrated when I think about that. Um, faith is not blind assurance or blind belief, right? What the Old Testament authors knew by faith, we now know by name. His name is Jesus, Right, But faith is the thing that's underneath our belief system and underneath what's going on in the world that gives us something firm to stand on. What's crazy about what the writer of Hebrews says here is that faith is substance. Right, Just like, you know, I have flesh and bones, there's material qualities to, to all of us. Faith, he's equating faith to something like that, something that you can actually stand on. 
That's why one of the best depictions in modern pop culture of faith is um, Indiana Jones. Um, and uh, what is it? Uh, it's not the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's the one with the Holy Grail, right? When, he, when, he, when he's got the bridge that's got to walk across and he takes that faith step. That is a very accurate, biblically accurate look at what faith is. There is a substantive reality that you cannot see that you can actually stand on. And it is the firmest, that is the firmest, is that even a word? It is the most firm thing that you could stand on. So how is that connected to image? All right, good question. So if faith is substance, then um, faith is the thing that humanity carries that makes the tangible activity of God, that, that carries, that makes tangible the activity of God on the earth, right? When we are people of faith, right? When you say, oh, I'm a person of faith, that doesn't just mean that you, you know, passed the catechism in the Catholic Church, or you've been baptized, or you said the sinner's prayer 16 times at summer Baptist camp, right? Faith means that you are someone that carries in you the Word of God that makes tangible His activity on the earth. How different is that than just the moral majority, right? I mean, we, we... we got to vote the Bible and get people to believe in our book. Man, that may, be, that may be good if you believe in the book, but if you don't believe in the one that wrote the book and encountered him, then you're living in dead religion, and you're just like all the other religions, believing a set of principles without encountering the presence. And God didn't create humanity so that we would have principles. He didn't send Jesus to live and die so he could give us a book. Okay, he came so that we would encounter and have the faith of Jesus, have something to stand on that the world looks at and says, I just don't see that. And you're a fool, even worse, you're a fool for doing that. And where we're rapidly descending to an American culture, not only are you a fool, but you're a domestic terrorist and a threat to what we're building. And so you're being criminalized for it. And I just want to say this, I spent a little bit of time with a... Um, uh, Cheon in, in Guatemala recently, and he has had a wonderful victory. You guys have probably heard about it in his church where the, the totalitarian governor Newsom has been reprimanded finally by the Supreme Court and by the courts. And then if you didn't see this, it's worth repeating. Last week, he was ordered to pay, I think, $1.2 or $1.3 million in legal fees back to Matt Staver and Liberty Council. Um, so we've had some victories for religious freedom in this country, but the Governor Newsom's assault on the church was not a facade. He didn't target bars and nightclubs and strip clubs and whatever. He targeted believers who were singing and gathering because they were speaking out the divine word of God, singing that out and gathering together, making tangible manifest on the earth the activity of God. And that was attacked and assaulted. They made substantive display of the power of Jesus in the earth. And the enemy, the demonic enemies, inspired humans to go and attack and assault that. Don't know why I started talking about that, but that's what happened. Um, So, faith is substance, right? It's not just belief. It's substance, all right? So then... 
let's look at what it means then to be an image bearer. And I'm going to connect these things for us. Image bearing then is tending to creation in such a way that God's divine and eternal qualities are made manifest on the earth. Right? If faith is substance and we are the image bearers and God's, we are the ones that image out God in the earth and we are a shadow or a copy of God in that capacity, then our job is to tend to creation, the environment and each other in such a way that God's qualities are made manifest in the earth. Okay? And there's one more piece to this. What that is, is something called glory. Okay, and you've heard people talk about glory maybe, and, you know, that's like a glory. It's like a Christian phrase, and you're like, oh, I'm glory. I'm feeling the glory. Well, yeah, maybe. The, the Hebrew word is chabod, and it means weight, right? But it's not just an ex- exclamation or, a, you know, an emotivist expression. Right? Glory is something tangible, and I'm going to show you how this is all connected here. So let's look at this. This is Jesus. We can trust him. John 17, 1 through 5. This is the high priestly prayer. These are the things uh, that Jesus prayed to the Father. This is one of the most important pieces of New Testament scripture. Verse 1, John 17. When Jesus spoke these, had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. All right, so now we're back to the origins of the universe again. Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, he goes there when he's talking about faith, and he's talking about the world being formed. Jesus immediately goes there when he's talking about this, saying, God, I want back the glory, the expression of you that you gave me before the earth was even formed, before you even spoke and hovered over the chaos and, and separated the waters and built the firmament and created earth and land. And before all of those things, I want the glory back that I had with you before the world existed. Okay, and then look at what he says here next. Jumping ahead a little bit. That's a great prayer. Read it all. But we're going to jump ahead to verse 20. He says this, I do not ask for these only. He's talking about his disciples. These is the reference to the 12 disciples and those that followed him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I'm going to pause there. In case you haven't seen this before, This is where Jesus prays for you, the New Testament believer. Almost by name. He doesn't put Carol's name in there or Alan's name in there. But he says, I'm praying now, not just for the ones that I know that you gave to me, that I was the the rabbi to while I walked the earth, but I'm praying for everyone that will believe in me through the testimony of these that I followed. Okay? So this is Jesus praying for you. So perk up. Perk up, y'all pay attention to what he's praying. Let's go on, verse 21. 
that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. All right, I'm going to pause there. So this is the crazy idea in Scripture, is that community is expressed through singularity or unity. It's the Hebrew word echad. It's one or alone. So God says that I want to draw them into community by making them one. Not one thing that everybody loses their individuality, but it is this divine math. You know, it's the man will leave his wife and cling to, leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and become one flesh. You know, if anyone's been married, you know that your spouse is totally different than you. And the Lord is laughing at your misery. Uh, and it's not your misery. It's the it's opportunity for growth. Uh, I don't think my wife watches this. Op- opportunity for growth, baby. Um, and But that's the divine math, is that two things would become one. You don't lose the individuality, but you become knitted together in this echad, this alone unity. It's like Jesus is praying here to pull us into the center of the community that he lives in from the beginning. Right? One of my friends says it like this, is that Jesus prays that we would be pulled into the Trinity, that we'd be pulled into the oneness of God that's expressed in community. All right, let's keep going. Verse 22, so that they may be one in us. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world." Man, I really wish that you could, I hope that you can feel the passion and the yearning in Jesus as he prays for you, as he prays for me, that he's praying that we would experience the same measure of connection to God that he experiences with God, the Father, as God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He's praying that we would experience that. And all of this is about what? It's about this. I'm going to see if I can annotate this. This is about that the world may know. Okay? Why does God do all of this? So that the world will know. How does the world know? We get pulled into the center of the Trinity, the glory that Jesus had from the beginning The Father gives back to him, and then he gives it to us so that we get pulled into his heart so that the world would know. What what is that? Y'all, this is the call of the image bearer, right? This is what we do. This is who we are. This is day seven, the Ark of the Covenant. This is the moment when God created humanity to radiate his divine glory throughout the world of human project. This is what it means to be an image bearer. 
that we would radiate God's divine glory throughout the world. This is the day seven in the capacity that I talked about it. This is the temple story. And this is another motif of that, is that God creates the space, and then he fills the space with his glory. Do you guys remember what's in between the, the wings of the, the, the seraphim? It's the chabod. It's the Shekinah glory, or it's the glory of God, the Shekan, the dwelling place, glory, Chabod. It's the weight of God. You know, glory has the the term weight um, because it's like, I don't know, I love love weighted blankets. Um, Wrong one. There we go. Um, It's like you feel like just this, when this weight descends upon you, you can feel this comforting presence that you know you're not alone. There's just this weight um, that descends on you. And the glory of the Lord is not a concept. It's a tangible experience on the earth, you know, and that that is what bearing the image of God is all about, expressing, radiating, communicating his glory out in the earth. That is humanity's job, okay? So, when the scriptures talk about us being made in the image of God, we have been given this divine mandate. And if you've read ahead a little bit in your Bibles from Genesis chapter 2, you know Genesis chapter 3 takes a nosedive, okay? Uh, and we're going we're gonna to take a little dive into that murky water next week or two weeks from now. But it's important that we know that the Bible does not begin with Genesis 3, Okay, doesn't begin with the fall, the quote-unquote fall. And I'm going to redefine that word for us. Um, so hopefully I don't kill any sacred cows. Well, too sacred. Um, the Bible doesn't begin in Genesis 3. It begins in Genesis 1, where we have been made to image out, to radiate his glory. And if you were with us last week when I was all sciency about light, radiation by definition Radiation means that you've passed this near-field electromagnetic um, field, and you've gotten past. This is the tendency of electromagnetism to pull everything back into the origin. So you've got to blast out an electromagnetic particle out past this near-field force. And once it gets past the near-field electromagnetic force, it becomes light, far-field electromagnetic radiation. And the word radiate means to go out unobstructed, okay? And you can see that in the New Testament, that we are the radiant glory of God. There's a ton of passages about radiation and glory. So this whole idea is that the image bearers have have authority, have the glory of the Lord, and we're meant to impact culture and impact the world, with the expression of God on the earth, right? This is not the holy huddle mindset. This is not us four no more, um, withdraw from the world and wait for the destruction of everything so that our rescuing second coming Jesus will get us out of here just when the world needs us the most, right? That is a defeatist mindset, uh, that that draws the church back into itself, and it strips from the church the divine mandate to be image-bearing, radiant glory sharers of Jesus. Okay? So, this is what it means to be an image-bearer. All right? That makes me happy. Truth, 
Truth has weight beyond just cognitive knowledge, right? I mean, this is one of my weaknesses, y'all. Like I get, I get very heady and I get like all talky, rational person. But there's some moments in the scriptures, the whole point of this verbal exercise is to have an experience that deepens with your creator. And tonight, hopefully I'm going to show you just how clear that is in the scriptures, that we're not just called to know about God, but we're called to commune with God. So fundamentally, we must know that we have been made as the pinnacle of creation to be image bearers, radiant glory displayers in the earth. Now, the next thing that we need to understand is what I call that we have been made valuable. I titled tonight, Valuable, Vulnerable, and Imperfect. And those three things, God made humanity, I believe he made us valuable, vulnerable, and imperfect. Okay? And we're going to talk about what that means now, but it's rooted in our image-bearing nature. All right? So let's look at what does it mean to be valuable. Talk about this. This is Genesis 1, verse 28 and 29. And God blessed them, humanity, that he just made. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So you can tell now, because we've learned it, that to have dominion, God is saying, be fruitful, multiply, expand, radiate your glory, and I want you to husband the fish and the birds and every living thing that is on creation. I want you, Adam and Eve, humanity, to be the husband of creation. I'm your husband, now you husband creation. Okay? Verse 29. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. All right, I've said this before, but the the entire Bible, if you were to reduce it to a singular metaphor, I would probably choose a seed and a fruit or a seed and a womb metaphor. Right? It's the divine seed going into the womb of creation. God creates a sacred space, a womb, and then impregnates it with his presence. Okay? That is, that is well, I'm kind of off topic now, but I'm going to go there. That is the moment when, um, when God overshadows Sarai, Abram's wife, because she's barren. And the scriptures say that God overshadows her. The shadow, the image-bearing shadow overshadows her and she gets pregnant. Same thing happens with Mary when the power of the Most High God overshadows her and she gets pregnant. Same thing happens with Paul or Peter at the gate beautiful. At the gate beautiful when people walk by and they're healed by the shadow of Peter. Right? This is not just a, a name it and claim it word of faith like my, my shadow is so anointed. I'll sweat on this prayer cloth and you can buy it for $16 and you can come stand in my shadow, right? It's talking about this manifest glory, this presence of God, the weight. When God overshadows something, life comes forth. This is the seed in the womb, the place. Um, I don't know why I got into that, but that's the seed and its fruit. Um, This is my show, so I can do what I want. Verse 30. And 
to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that cross that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Okay, so God saw everything that he made, and it was very good. Okay, in all of the other days, he said, it is good. It is good. It is good. On day six, it's very good. So this is an expression of God's value. Okay, and this is incredibly important that we get the identity as believers of who God says we are, and are we even valuable? Okay, well, the Bible says that I believe it. That settles it. Um, you can check out now if that's good enough. Uh, I want to talk about what does it mean to be good? When God says it is good, what does that mean? So we know that God ordered the chaos, right? That he came in with his divine speech and orders the chaotic world. That there was already waters. There wasn't, there, there's not a material origin story again. There was already waters, and God is speaking out over the things that are there, and he's ordering the chaotic realms. And this is interesting to me because every time God orders the chaos, he calls it good. This is an important understanding. So what is good? Well, good is order from the chaos, right? Anytime God comes and orders chaos, it's good. So order equals good, chaos equals something else. Hmm, it's a mystery. All right, so this begs the question for me, what is good? So we're going to talk about that, of course. There are a couple of different um, ways to understand this word good in the Hebrew, okay? And uh, it's used quite a bit when God says it is good. Uh, first, we'll start with what it's not, okay? Um, good does not mean morally pure and without sin, okay? That's not what the word means. Um, oh, I jumped the gun on that. I'll tell you this story in a minute when I get to the punchline. Dang it. So it doesn't mean morally good, morally pure, and without sin. So one of the ways that this word gets used here in the scriptures is to talk about who the Lord is. Right? It's good in this Hebrew word is a description of who the Lord is, and he acts in good ways. And there's a bunch of different um, verses in the scriptures to lay this out. So what is good in Hebrew? Well, it's, it's who God is, right? It's his nature. He acts in this particular way. There's another way this word gets used, and that's to contrast the evil or the chaos, and it's a relative or a better than distinction. So sometimes the psalmist will talk about good um, versus evil, and he talks about all the evil stuff that happens, but he says essentially that, God, you're good. So it's a, distingu- a distinguishing phrase to separate out um, good and evil, or chaos and order. Another way that it's talked about is functioning as intended in its proper design. And this is where I want to kind of focus some energy here now about this idea that good is something that's functioning in its proper design or as it was intended. 
the very idea of design means intention, right? You can't have a designed thing without intention of the designer. There's an intelligent design behind the things that God is doing. So let's look at a couple of scriptures that talk about God's intention, all right? And this is the word good used in a handful of different scriptures so that we've got an understanding about what that word good means. This is Isaiah 41. He says, The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. So this is a prophetic picture. Um, I mean, he's prophesying to Israel. Go read the context. But the context here is clear that, uh, that it's a craftsman designing something. He's making something. And it's something that has intentionality. It has purpose. And it's something, when he sees that it's good, functioning as it was intended, it gets strengthened up with nails so that there isn't a movement on it. Anyone that's built something of value wants it to be sustainable. They want it to last, okay? Unless you're like an a experimental artist that just makes those pop up, um, like Christo, a famous artist from the 70s and 80s who did all these temporary art installations around the world. There's some beauty in that, but good means that it was um, doing what it was supposed to do. Here's another one. This is 2 Chronicles 6, 26. We read this scripture last week. This is the, the, the final day of the infilling of Solomon's temple. And Solomon, this is part of Solomon's prayer. And he says, When the heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they've sinned against you, that's Israel, if they pray towards this place, the temple, and acknowledge your name, God, and turn from their sin, when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. So Solomon here is juxtaposing um, what was very well known in Israel at the time, that they had turned away from God and that Solomon had built this temple in, in partnership with his, his father David so that the place of the name could be established in the people so that they could walk in the ways that God had designed them to walk in. The whole thing about establishing the temple was to put the center, in the center of culture and society, to put the purposes and the power and the intentionality of God. So he says, when you teach us the good way, the way in which we should halak, to walk, okay? So this is what good is in this capacity. So does anyone know a moment in the scripture when God said, it's not good? Did God ever make something that was not good? See, Melody's getting ready to type. Yeah, that's the answer. Ding, 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 ding. Winner. Here's the one verse. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. Uh, We'll probably talk about this in the near future. Uh, The word helper is the Hebrew word etzer. And it's like a warrior protector watchman. You know, it's not woman who cooks and cleans and gets beer while I watch hockey. Uh, That's from my Canadian friends, right? Helper is a word that is a powerful word. It's used in the scriptures to talk about woman in Genesis, Holy Spirit and God himself. Okay? Etzer. 
So God says that it's not good for man to be alone. Well, what does that mean? Well, if good means functioning as you have been designed and intended, it means that humanity, not in community with each other, is not operating in God's optimal design and function. Okay? He's not saying that it's, it's bad if you don't marry. You know, people that have never married are not bad. Okay, this isn't just talking about marriage. Yes, marriage is an expression of that. Um, but some of the greatest people on the planet uh, are people that never married. And they were not alone. Okay, this is about helper. Sometimes you get an etzer in the form of a woman, and sometimes you get an etzer in the form of the spirit. And you would be doubly blessed if you get both of those things. But don't confuse the two. That can lead to trouble. So... The idea here then of good is that very good means that humanity was functioning in our God-designed identity to radiate his glory in community. Okay? This is what good means. And it doesn't mean when God created humanity and called it very good, he didn't say that you are morally pure without sin and perfect. Now, that may have been the case. We haven't gotten there yet as we're working through the Scripture, but that's not what this particular phrase means. I live in a neighborhood um, that has a lot of Delta pilots, uh, and I've never actually checked this with a Delta pilot now that I'm saying this out loud, but I'm going to go with the story because it illustrates my point. Um, like a good preacher, make up stories to make your point. Um, but you can. there are pre-flight checks, right? I do know that. I've watched enough um, Die Hard movies to know. Um, but... There are pre-flight checks. So when the pilot and the co-pilot go through a checklist, you know, they probably don't do it now that they're pros for a long time, but if they call out a system and, you know, they say the engine or the tail fin or the rudder or the, like I'm, I'm showing my, my airplane ignorance here, I got to come up with a better metaphor or learn something about airplanes. Um, but when he, they do these pre-flight checks, they say engine and the co-pilot says good or check. Yeah, they're not saying that the engine didn't sin that morning or that he pled the blood of Jesus over the engine before they got onto the plane, which is a good idea. I appreciate that. I mean, I do that as soon as I step onto the plane and get one of those little sanitary napkins. Um, but that's not what they're saying. They're saying that the, the plane is functioning as it's been intended. And before you take off on a plane with a bunch of people's lives in your hand, you need to know that everything is functioning as it's been intended to function, that everything is good, okay? Everything is good. So someone is chatting me some information about pilots. Um, pilots never not go through pre-flight check. Good. I stumbled my way into something accurate. Thank you, Jesus. So that's what good means, all right? And this, is, this, this was a really helpful revelation to me because I thought that God made humanity good, and that was just a massive juxtaposition for me who was deeply not good, right? That I was a deeply awful, flawed, sinful, shame-filled person with this long laundry list of things that, that I had not done right, I had not done proper, and God was angry with me. This is not my theology. This is what I used to believe. Um, 
all these things that I was not good. And because Eden was perfect and pristine and everything was good and idyllic and just set all nice and perfect and Adam and Eve were naked and they like ate fruit and all the animals cleaned up after themselves. Everything was perfect, right? But the scriptures are not necessarily saying that. They may be. We haven't gotten there yet. But here, good means that God intentionally designed us to function at an optimal level. And if you're going to function at an optimal level, if you're going to fly your jumbo jet of life with all of the people that you can destroy in your wake, you may want to get clear what a well-functioning life is all about, right? That you would be an image-bearing person who lives in community with God and each other, that you radiate the glory of God and that you make manifest on the earth the activity of God on the earth, that your life is something that displays the things that God has said is true already in the heavens, right? Faith is substance. We are those image-bearing people. Jesus prayed for you to live that way, okay? And nowhere in this image-bearing goodness is following the rules, doing the right thing, right? That's a consequence, I think, that comes a little bit later on, and we're going to get to these deep topics because the 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 Genesis story does have chapter three in it. Okay, there is a there is a rebellion, there is a fall, there is a disconnection, there are damaging e- nearly eternal, I think it is eternal, effects of a disconnection. But God didn't make us that way. And when we go back to the origin, we're going back to remembering that we were made to image bear, that we were made good We can function in the way God designed us, and that is to radiate his glory in community. Okay? We are valuable beyond measure. All right? So that's image and valuable, and I'm going to do vulnerable next. Aren't you glad we're not going to do perfect? It's a lot. All right. Vulnerable. So, um... I've been very interested for a while, um, maybe you're not as interested as me, but about, I mean, when I had kids, I couldn't believe when I, I took home my first child uh, from the hospital, I couldn't believe that they let me just walk out of the hospital with that little creature, right? I was like, are you sure I don't need to like sign a release? Well, I did have to sign a release, but you know, I was given, entrusted this little creature that I didn't, I didn't know what to do with it, um, you know, and if I didn't do something with it, it would die. It was this infinitely valuable thing that was without measure. You know, even in prison, if you are an abuser of children, you're the worst of the worst, right? So even people that have thrown off all moral restraint recognize that children are a special class of vulnerable that require our protection. And I think it's remarkable that that God made humans to come into the world with this infinite value, this eternal value, totally helpless, totally incapable of taking care of ourselves. And not just for like a couple of weeks, like some of the other animals, but, well, some would say more than 18 years, totally incapable of taking care of ourselves, right? If, If... 
The reality is for humans that if we are not immediately put into a family, preferably a biological family with, with husband and wife, mom and dad, if we are not put into a family immediately with all of our daily needs met, we will die. And it's remarkable to me that the most, the, the quintessential example of purity, innocence, is a child, which is totally dependent. And it's almost like the more innocent we are, the more dependent we become. And there's some sort of correlation between becoming independent and losing our innocence. But God didn't have to do it like that. I mean, it seems to me if he could have done something else, he may have done it. He didn't, but he could have. Like, he could have just dropped us in like a sea turtle, you know, Mom could have laid us in the sand and we could have hatched ourselves without a parent and we could have waddled ourselves down to the ocean to be swallowed whole by any number of creatures, you know? And that's not the way God made humanity. So we are incredibly valuable, but we are also one of the most, if not the most vulnerable species on the planet for the longest amount of time. And while I was doing research on this, you know, all of the evolutionary biologists say that the reason that that is the case is that we have unusually large brains um, and that if we matured inside of the mother's womb, our brain would get too big for the pelvic bone and we wouldn't be able to pass through the birth canal with our big brains. So we had to get spit out early. I don't know. That, that seems to jive with the scriptures. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks, you know. What what makes us vulnerable? Well, the fact that we know too much, that we ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and our brains get too big, so we come out early so that we're super vulnerable because of all the knowledge that we have. That'll make more sense in a few weeks when I talk about that. But we're, va- we're vulnerable, all right? So I want to read this, and the ultimate vulnerability is being vulnerable to death, all right? I mean, it's one thing to be vulnerable to coronavirus that kills like nobody. Um, I mean, people did die from coronavirus, but it's a very small percentage. But vulnerable to something that actually kills you. So let's read this scripture here when God talks about humanity and the making of humanity. This is Genesis 2, 5 through 7. So, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord got because the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. All right, so this is our second creation story, and it clearly says that God formed the man from dust on the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life. First little passing point here is this is a day six kind of micro story of the whole day seven creation story. The whole creation story is that God creates a womb and then fills it with life. Okay, and God created humanity and then filled it with life. 
Okay, he breathed the breath of life into it. This is a repeating theme, and our very existence owes itself to this theme. God creates a space, he creates a womb, and he fills the womb with his seed. He puts the life into the inanimate person, and it becomes a living being. I don't know if you guys have seen those uh, really close-up pictures of the moment of inception, the spark of electricity when, when a sperm and an egg meet. It's, it's fascinating. I mean, it's an electrical reaction. But we owe it to ourselves to ask this question, you know, made from dust, what is that? Okay, this is my big pile of dirt. Um, Or if you are a horticultural student, it's called soil. It's not dirt, it's soil. Um, But what is dust? Okay, and the first thing we need to remember is that this is a home story. Okay, and what that means, of course, is that dust is not a material. Okay, we don't need to be looking at this scripture thinking that, well, what were the pH balance chemical composition of the clay soil in Mesopotamia at the place between the two rivers that God would have taken the, the chemical things and created a carbon-based life form out of the dirt? Like, that's not the story that God's telling. Okay, so what then does dust, what does made from dust even mean? Have you guys ever asked that question? Well, I was terrified of three things, not existing, tornadoes, and death, um, or divorce. Not existing, tornadoes, and divorce. I've said that before, but dust is connected to one of those three, um, tornadoes. So let's ask this question and take a look at this. Um, If we're going to discover what dust is, then we should probably read some scriptures and see how the word dust is used in the scripture, okay? That's what we're doing here. So I got four of these or five of these to show you what the word dust or the concept dust means in the scripture. This is Joshua 6, 7. This is the tragedy at, at, at I, um, where people, uh, his people, um, uh, they do bad things. They invoke the presence of the Lord and some other funky stuff. And then they, Joshua finds out about it. And so Joshua 7, 6, Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Okay, so this is an idea of coating your head in dust. It was a huge tragedy, and they cover themselves in dust. Okay, this is a a practice that happens in some of the Orthodox uh, religious communities and some of the Catholic communities as well. Uh, When do we put dust on our foreheads? Ash Wednesday, right? What is ash? Why do we put it on our foreheads in the sign of the cross? To remember the death, the suffering of Jesus, right? Let's keep going. Here's another great one. This is 2 Kings 23 and 6. And King Josiah, this is part of Josiah's great reforms. He brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord. These are the pagan poles that were worshipped um, or where they were worshipped. He brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord out of the temple, and he brought it outside of Jerusalem to the brook Kidron, and he burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. Okay, this is more, this is what dust is. It has to do with destruction, tearing down the demonic idols that were in the house of God, destroying them and throwing the dust on graves. Okay, Here's another good one. Psalm 7, 5. 
Let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. So here the psalmist is connecting his glory, what God has called him to be an image bearer out in culture, in the world, in the kingdom. He's saying, my enemies are pursuing me. They're destroying me. This is like the woe is me lament. He's saying, my enemies are overtaking me. They're beating me down. And I am everything that God made me to do is just going to be turned into dust. Okay? Psalm 22, 15. If y'all don't know Psalm 22, read it. It's a beautiful messianic psalm. It's a revelation uh, there. Jesus quotes a couple of pieces on the cross. It's worth your read. This says this, My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. We get the point? What is dust? It's death, right? This is the best passage. This is Genesis This is what God says to Ha-Adam, humanity, Adam and Eve. He says, after the rebellion, he curses the serpent, he curses the ground, he doesn't curse humanity, but he says this, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So it's very clear, right, even in the Middle East today, today, um, that when there's a death and a lament, you know, they throw dust, sackcloth and ashes and dust, right? Dust is death. All right, so made from dust, what does that mean? I mean, think about this for a minute. I'm leading you to a very uncomfortable statement I'm about to make. If we follow the witness of the Scripture and not Augustine. The scriptures say that being made from dust means that in the beginning, God made man mortal and called it very good. Think about this. We were made out of the dust. We were made from dust. Some of you guys are having a hard time with this. And I, you should be, okay? Because I'm not, I'm not going to leave this lingering here. Could it really be that God made us mortal in the garden? Mortal. That doesn't seem to fit with our theology, right? You know, we're we're taught that we were made immortal, and that when we sinned and rebelled, God stripped from us our immortality, our mortal nature, our immortal nature, and he consigned us to live a mortal life. Okay? A lot of that understanding comes out of Romans 5 and 2 Corinthians. I'll cover that in latter sessions. Okay? But when the scriptures say, this is a big question, it's not going to be easily resolved, but you're probably asking yourself, you know, what about eternal life? Right? If we were weren't we made eternal and then we we lost our nature? Well, Genesis doesn't talk about that. The Old Testament doesn't talk about that. There are some key passages in the New Testament 
that do begin to discuss some of those things. Um, and they're important passages, and we can get to that. But I want to lay this Hebrew foundation, is that the question here is that God clearly says that we were made out of the dust, that we were made from death. And I think that that means in the garden that we were made mortal. Go with me now. You're probably asking yourself, well, what, is, what about eternal life then? If we were made that way, how does Jesus come and save us to live eternally? I mean, if we were made mortal, what the heck? So we got to ask this question, what is eternal life? We read it earlier. What is eternal life? Eternal life is this, that they would know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is Jesus in John 17. What is eternal life? That we would have a yada, a knowing of God. This is not a cognitive thing. What he's saying here is that we would get pulled into the center of the Trinity. We would get the glory. We would be made to know intimately, to be inseparably connected, intertwined, brought into the center of the Trinity, made one. This was the great yearning of Jesus, our high priest, our Messiah, our perpetual Savior, the one for once and for all have made a sacrifice for us. He said, this is eternal life, that you would have an encounter, be intimately connected with the divine without separation. This is John 16 and 15 and 14. John 15, it's all about abiding. Why was Jesus talking so much about not being separated from God? Because when we're separated from God, we're dead. You don't bear fruit when you're separate from God, okay? You bear fruit when you're connected to God. All right, so what Jesus is saying here is that he wants to reconnect us to life, eternal, okay? And in the scripture, this is eternal life. And hopefully I'm not losing you guys because I just said we're mortal, made mortal. This doesn't weaken the gospel of Jesus. It, it makes it stronger, I believe. So in the scriptures, we see here that out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we're going to get into our discussion about the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's what this little tree graphic gives on everything, because that's a big deal. But we know in the scriptures that where was life in the Garden of Eden? It was a tree, and you could eat from everything except the one that brought you death, which, ta-da, was the one that we did. So, there is a tree of life. What happens when you disconnect from life? In the scriptures, when we disconnected from life, what did God do when we rebelled, when we fell, that moment when we disconnected? Well, this is what God did. Genesis 3.24, he drove out humanity, the man, the Ha'adam, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So let's think about this for a minute. The Garden of Eden was a perfect place in this capacity. It was functioning as God designed it and as God intended it, right? 
We looked at that. It was very good. It was functioning as God designed it. And the design was that humanity would have rulership and dominion and husbandry over everything on the earth. That God, <clears throat> excuse me, God created the creation, filled it with his presence, and then created humanity, filled them with his presence, and said, go and do that in the earth. And that they would live forever in his presence. But if they were mortal, made from dust, how would they live forever? Well, they would eat from any tree of the garden except the one that brought them death. What does it mean to have eternal life? To be intimately connected to Jesus, the tree of life. This is the picture that emerges for me in Eden, is that God made humanity mortal but there was no restriction to their connection to God. And as long as they abided in the vine and stayed connected to the tree of life, they would live forever because eternal life is to know Jesus, to live connected to God. And it's almost like we have this vision, and this this was very helpful to me. It's like I have this vision, like everything on earth is all about, we all die, our bodies die and decay. But Jesus says that those that believe in me will never die right? Maybe the Spirit's immortal. We get new bodies. There's a whole bunch of conversation and theology under this, but go with me here. If, if you go to heaven, all of your earthly experience was about being intimately dependent on Jesus, and then you get to heaven, and all of a sudden you're immortal, and you no longer need to depend on Jesus the way that you did on earth— maybe. I mean, we don't have to deal with sin anymore. He's finished all of that. But I think heaven isn't becoming immortal in ourselves. Heaven is living connected to Jesus with no barriers, no restrictions, no sin, no missing the mark. Eternal life is to live intimately, daily, tangibly connected to God. And why would we be offended if we get to heaven and still have to breathe? You know? Why does it weaken the gospel that we need breath? It doesn't. We're desperate, and God, I believe y'all designed it like this, for us to be desperately daily dependent on connection to him. And to the degree that we disconnect is the degree to which we ultimately die and decay. And that our daily decay of our soul, of our nation, of the things, it's all about the connection to the tree of life. And this is what makes the eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the detracting or disconnecting from the tree of life so damaging. And so ultimately, y'all, the tragedy of the disconnection was not that humanity was made from dust, but that we would return to dust. This was the problem. Our destiny was to live forever intimately connected to God as mortals that need Jesus like we need air. But when we rebelled, thought we could be like God without God, we ate from the tree. We tried to become God by not being intimately connected, but by gaining knowledge. And I'm going to talk about this in a couple of weeks. When we did that, our ultimate destiny shifted from staying in the garden to being cast out and separated. And this is why God guarded the tree of life. 
Because that was the thing, and this is the picture, that we could live forever eating from the tree of life, but still being disconnected from God. And so he guarded humanity that we would be filled with our own knowledge of good and evil. And we had to go out and start working that problem out. Okay, And this is what the rest of the scriptures are about, how God works out the problem that humanity disconnected, mortal humanity disconnected from an eternal God, and now we've got to trust to get our ultimate destination, not in the ground, but back in the garden or back with the Father. Does this make sense? This is a little crazy, I know, right? But this really helped me because I've never understood how, like we make these bold claims and there's a lot of bold claims in the scriptures, you know, like Jesus was alive and then he died and he came back to life. He walked on water and there's a lot of bold claims, but it never really made sense to me why God made this amazing divine nature, immortal nature, and then took it away. And then we get it back. We took it away because, you know, we ate a fruit, you know. And I'm going to unpack for us in the coming weeks what that connection to knowledge of good and evil is and how that disconnects us from life. But the fundamental look in the scripture here is that the disconnection from God was a tragedy because it changed our ultimate destination. We go back to the dirt from which we were made instead of living forever connected to the tree of life. And if that's the case, then the whole human project begins to make a little more sense to me and why living connected to Jesus is a daily thing. That I think that we're going to live connected to Jesus in heaven in a way that makes this earthly thing seem like a, a weak little shadow. You know, and it's not that we just come out of our need to need him. We need Jesus like we need air and water. And so the idea then that we have been made valuable, we're functioning as God intended, and we've been made vulnerable, that just like babies, something of infinite value and infinite worth and and sinlessness or, you know, let me get into the whole like age of accountability thing, but infinite value as a child, they must live connected to God so that they don't die immediately. And as we get older and stronger and better at the illusion that we don't need God, we forget the fundamental reality. And this is why I believe that God sent Jesus through a virgin birth as a baby. He submitted his son to the to the earthly problem, which was the reality that there is a mortality, that the body dies unless you live connected to Jesus. And he came and modeled his desperate need for a mother to be cared for, intended to, and went through that whole process. So I like this comment, Laura. We would much rather have relationship with the Lord than our own immortal nature. And I don't know if there's, I mean, I could be wrong about this. You know, we could get some immortal nature and I don't know what the metaphysical reality is, is that our bodies are somehow never decay anymore. I don't know what the deal is, but I do know that 
our lives were made to live connected to Jesus. And when we disconnect from him, we die. Our spirits die and our bodies die. And one of these days, he is going to resurrect us into a full connection where we're no longer disconnected. And maybe we get an immortal body or maybe our bodies still need to live connected to Jesus. Only we don't ever disconnect in heaven because God's creation has been filled with the yada, the knowledge of the glory of God, the expression of God on the earth. That's what the kingdom coming to earth in its fullness is about. God's glory radiating through his image-bearing children, expressing the glory of God on the earth without measure, without limit, without obstacle. This is heaven on earth, God coming in his power to reconnect his kids. So... That is, sorry, I just muted someone on my ear. Um, That is the end of this study. I was going to jump into imperfect, uh, but um, I want to stop it there and pick this back up next week. So I hope that this was helpful, and I'd like to take a few moments here to, to answer any questions that you may have. If you're on YouTube or Facebook, go ahead and type in. I'm kind of looking at some of the comments. Um... If you're on Zoom and you want to raise your hand, then you can do that. Uh, You won't be on the screen, but your audio will be through um, my sound system here. So, Nancy, you got a question. Please unmute and ask it. Um, Yeah, two things. One is I always thought that just being made in God's image, he's a spirit, and he breathed a spirit so that we're spirit beings, not just physical bodies. So I always thought, and then he said, in the day you eat it, you will die. And that their spirit died when they ate the fruit. That's one question is that we're, our image is that we have a spirit like God. And then number two is around the dominion. It's very focused on things on the earth, not spirit beings in the heavens. Um, And so was the dominion just for things on the earth versus spirit beings in the heavens. Right. Good question. So um, because I'm focusing in on the, the, the earthly piece of this doesn't mean that I think that it's only earthly. Um, I'm focusing in here on this specific uh, piece to that, but I love the question. And I do think that being part of the image bearing nature of God is that we are spirit. Right, and the spirit is a part of us that is hard to define. Um, it's it's an intangible thing. Um, I do believe that there is an eternal spirit that we all have. Uh, you know, philosophers and theologians have talked and debated about what the spirit is and what the soul is, and all of these things for generations. Um, but that that is a distinctive of being an image bearer. So, how then do we radiate God's glory? How do we live connected to God so that we do that? Well, I think that that's a spiritual connection. And I think that that is a tangible thing, that our spirits will commune with his spirit. You know, that the Holy Spirit, that we have not been given a spirit of fear, but one of sonship by which we cry out, Abba, Papa, Daddy. So the image-bearing thing is most definitely that we have a spirit. But again, that's not just... We're not just telling a house story like, oh, it means that we just have this thing, a spirit. Well, what do you do with your spirit? You know, um, in the charismatic world, um, which 
You know, I was a reluctant charismat because I encountered the Holy Spirit in the back deck of this guy's house in a Jewish neighborhood in San Antonio, and I I was a Reformed guy. I didn't know what the heck that was, but it's real. You know, I've watched people get laid out. I got laid out in the Spirit, you know, and I mean, I had vision, and God spoke to me. Like, that's real. But, you know, it can go weird because we don't get filled up to fall down. We get filled up to pour out. So the reason that we have a spirit is so that we will pour the spirit out, okay? We're not glory hoarders, we're glory releasers. You know, when Jesus says, I'm not going to share, or when the scriptures say, I'm not going to share my glory with another, well, thank goodness we're not another, because God shares his glory with us. So the reason we have a spirit is so that our spirits can radiate the glory of God in the earth, We don't just have a spirit so we can feel proud that we're going to live forever and not radiate God's glory. You know, so yes, image bearing definitely means that we are spiritual, spirit beings. Um, uh, And the second part of your question was something that if I say it long enough and fill with random words, I'll remember, but it didn't come to me in time. So what was the second part of the question? Um, Just about, it's very focused about having dominion on things of the earth, fish and things versus spirit beings, you know, in the, in the like heavens or still in the firmament above us. Right, right. Yeah. So that um, I think is connected to the fact that in Genesis, it was the creation of, I think this was all part of God's plan for us to tend to the earth. And I think that he understood that some things were going to be happening. Um, And the admission, the the fact that there isn't a declaration in Genesis that says, and take dominion over the spirit beings in the second heaven and the demons on the earth. Like, he didn't need to tell him that because that stuff wasn't part of the equation. Um, I do believe that that is part of what Jesus commissions us to do because he says, all authority has been given to you on earth and in the heavens. Um, he's talking about the second heavens, I believe, uh, to cast out demons, heal the sick, declare the kingdom of God is coming. And Ephesians talks about us having authority um, to tear down spiritual strongholds. So, But I do think that that ultimate spiritual authority that we have as image bearers, that comes through the completed work of Jesus. Um. And I don't know why it's not talked about in Genesis. Um, Because it's not talked about doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Um, It's just a different story, I think, that the Hebrews were telling. But yes, I do believe that that's part of having dominion um, on the earth. So good questions. Thanks, Nancy. I'm going to look. Okay, Ellie, any reading recommendations on these ideas? Have you written something you can share? Well, uh, I could send you the transcript from Google uh, for this talk, which would not be very fun. Um, Yes, there is, um, oh man, there's a couple of books. I'm reading one book right now. I mentioned it, but I don't remember the name of it because you asked me. Um, There's a guy named Walton. Let me Google this. Um, Dead air. There's a guy, Walton, that does a great, um, a great book that I read about this. Uh, see if I can find it up here in enough time. Okay, The Lost World of Genesis 1, an ancient cosmology and the origins debate. A guy named John Walton. Um, and this is a really good 
I've really enjoyed this book. I read it a couple of years ago, and he helped. Um, he helped with this. John Walton, The Lost World of Genesis. And, uh, and uh, Sherry put in the chat another guy, uh, which is really good, Michael Heiser. Uh, he is, I think it's called The Naked Podcast is his deal. Um, he, Michael Heiser, H-E-I-S-E-R, he writes a lot about, he's a PhD, I think, in Semitic ancient languages, and he's a really smart guy. Uh, and most of the time when you get to the PhD level in ancient Hebrew and languages and stuff, you lose a supernatural worldview because you get so rooted in your mind, but he is not. Um, he talks a lot about the supernatural world and image bearing and what does that mean. So Michael Heiser and John Walton uh, are a couple of people, um, the Naked Podcast. Uh, if any of you guys know on Facebook or, or um, uh, uh, YouTube, their stuff, post it in the chat. Um, for us. Um, see if there's anything else. All right, Dale, go ahead and unmute on zoom and ask a question. Hey, Adam, thank you so much for what you do. Sure. Um, you know, it's, I was just going to ask you a question from Michael Heisner. I wrote, I read a book of his called the unseen realm. Yeah. And when he, my- he actually spoke about that verse, uh, <laughs> um, about God, you know, let us create man in our image. And he said that, you know, according to the, actually a lot of what you say reminds me of him, but um, Michael Heisner, but um, he said, he said that they were referring to the heavenly council. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, <clears throat> might have, maybe it was the Trinity too, but his, his thought that, you know, God, the father, Jesus and the Holy spirit, yeah. they're all one. So that's right. like, who's going to think of it first? Are they talking to themselves you know, like, oh, let's create. Oh, I got you. I'll beat you to it, man. Let's let's create man, right? Yeah. Um, so he was he in his book. He just talked about like he's talking to the heavenly council, and he quotes Job where he said, "When God was creating the earth, yep. all the morning stars, all the sons of God were singing. It's like they were already there." Yeah. So I just wondered if you'd comment on that. Yeah, I I didn't want to get into the heavenly council because it's like okay. I mean, well, I mean, it's like a mind blower for you know a reformed theological guy. And I, I mean, I loved him and I loved reading that book. Um, and I do recommend that you guys read that um, on the heavenly realms. What's the name of the book? Do you know uh, the, unseen the unseen realm? realm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because there's a there's a whole. The Unseen Realm, I think it's about reclaiming an ancient biblical supernatural worldview is one of the subtitles or something about it. Um, but it's really important to understand that council, the Elohim and the council there. Uh, and I, I, didn't, I didn't talk about that because I couldn't give it the couple-hour treatment that he does on all of that. Um, but that, that I think that that is, oh man, I'm going to just... I'm going to hedge my thought because I'm going to go into like a big discussion on the Trinity and the council. And um, yes, how's that? Yes. I comment on that as yes. Uh, Thank you. Read, read Michael and the naked podcast. Um, Recovering the supernatural worldview of the Bible. Thank you, Sherry. Um, Another topic, less info. Great. Appreciate that. Um, yeah, I've got some folks on Facebook, um, uh, Jonathan Jones Stapley, the Elohim and the Heavenly Council. All right, so is there any other questions? Um, looking down here on YouTube. 
Well, I will um, sign off then. If you got something that burns in my little outro here, then please raise your hand and ask it. But next week, I am going to be doing on Memorial Day. Um, I am, I've got a nine night with too much information. I have a flight in the evening, so I need to do this at 6 p.m. Eastern next week. I will make this, but I'm just going to do one hour at 6 p.m. Eastern, do the math in your own time zone for that. Um, and we'll just do one hour on that. And I'm going to finish up this week's study on, um, what does it mean to be, uh, imperfect? Uh, and that one sort of deserves a week on its own because, you know, I'm a, I'm a perfectionist. And I usually think that that's a really good thing until I'm forced to talk publicly about it. But what does it mean that we were made imperfect? Uh, and that this was, this was a redeeming understanding again for me um, that, that shifted the way that I began to understand my version of perfect. Because culture tells us that perfection is one thing, but what the Bible calls perfect is very different than what culture calls perfect with our perfect body and our perfect image and our perfect whatever. Biblical perfection is about maturity. It's not about not making mistakes. So if you don't come back next week, you just heard the point. But, well, I'm going to cue... I'm going to cue my outro music because I can. So thank you all for joining again. Text study to the number here on your screen. Um, That will get you connected with me and the different things that I'm doing. That'll also get you the Zoom meeting if you want to join and ask questions. Um, Also, I am doing a handful of things preparing for a new season. And I'm hoping to continue on with these studies and to do more of this stuff because, you know, I've been in business for a long time now, but I'm just feeling the Lord say, Now's the time for the bride to get beautified, to strengthen the remnant, and we got to come together. And so I'm going to be probably focusing some more time on all that stuff. So again, thank you all for coming. Thank you all for joining with me. And I will see you again next week, 6 p.m. Eastern time. Bye. Thank you. All right. The big buy is the big buy is for the for the internet people. Thank you all for joining me on Zoom, y'all. Good night, Adam. I appreciate it. Good night. Good night. Bye. Thanks, Adam. Good Sleep night. Well. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank, Thank you. you.